Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Ann Fudge. Ann is the former chairman and CEO of Young and Rubicam Brands. Uh, Ann is also a very active board member, and that's what we're going to talk today. She's currently on the boards of Northrop Grumman, Novartis, and formerly on the boards of Unilever, Infosys, General, and uh, General Electric. And welcome to World of DAS. Thanks, Warren. The goal really is to talk about like how to be a great board member. It's like an odd skill that no one really talks about as much. And I think one of the difficulties of being a board member is this kind of tension between the CEO's boss and also like a CEO's advisor and counselor. How does like a great board member navigate that tension? So let me just step back and put some context into, because um, again, you always sort of are becoming and learning. Experientially, I went on my first board in 1992 which was Liz Claiborne and then Allied Signal, which merged with Honeywell. So I've had a lot of experience over time. And I think the most important element is understanding um, how you operate in the meeting itself in terms of the CEO. And there are other times, I mean, and I've come to do this a lot more in the last few years, um, particularly now that you get so much material to read ahead of time, I give the CEO a heads up to say, I'm going to, I'm supporting you on this, but I really have a lot of questions on X, Y, Z. And I wanted to have a heads up and happy to talk before the full board meeting. And so I try to give that feedback and I've done that with really all of my CEOs over the last 10 plus years, because there's information available before going to the meeting. I think it's really having been on the other side of the table. I don't believe in ambushing a CEO in a meeting. No surprises, essentially. It's no surprises. And I'm always very direct about what I'm supportive of and what I'm not supportive of. And what I think can be done to answer and address some of the questions that not only I would have, but my colleagues would. And are you always interacting directly with the CEO or are there other executives that you might be asking or talking to directly? The beauty of being able to get all the information on a board portal now is absolutely wonderful. Most boards load the data and information a week before the meeting. So you have more than enough time to review the materials and say, for example, you have some questions or whatever. My process has always been to shoot the question to the responsible person if that's their part of the presentation and say, great, covered this, need some more information on why. So that's how I've chosen to make that balance between being supportive and challenging because that is our role as a director. Uh, um, otherwise, you're not really adding value. And the other thing that's particularly important, I find this with newer board members who haven't sort of settled into the role, you have to remember you're not running the business. And there's a fine line between support and challenge and asking questions as if you were the, the person's boss, right? So like, yeah, technically you are, but 
like if it, if you're a good boss, right? You want to support the person's development. You want to because it's you want to make it a win-win for everybody, for the shareholder, for the leadership team. And so you find a way to insert yourself appropriately and at the appropriate time. You mentioned the board materials. Sometimes these board materials can be like hundreds and hundreds of pages long, and it's hard to go through all of that. Uh, how do you think companies should put together the board materials so that it's e most easily digestible by the board members themselves? As somebody who's a data hound, um, I'm used to a lot of material, and I prefer that. What some boards have done is have sort of two sets, like an executive summary at the beginning of particular section that you're going to talk about and then go into the detail. So there are different ways you can approach it. Again, every board member is gonna be different in terms of the amount of data they wanna consume. I definitely index on the higher data points and more information because sometimes I find that the devil's in the details, um, but you have to approach it based on working with your board. So let me step back for a minute. One of the things a CEO, the benefit of having a lead director or a non-executive chairman is that that's the person that you can talk directly with in terms of the kinds of materials. So for example, particularly before we go through the strategic plan, um, we're very specific as a board and lead director on what we want to see from the team. And so you provide them some guidance. And I think that's part of our role as directors to be able to provide that guidance. So they're focusing on the information that you feel you need to, to make informed decisions. Some of these board meetings can be like super impactful and super engaging. Some of them can be um, kind of long and tiresome a bit. That's not a good board meeting, long and tiresome. Here's, here's what we've done. You get the data, you know, and I don't want to get too deep into process, but then you say, okay, to each of the people who happen to be presenting or discussing, I don't want to see those charts. We've already read them. Here are the questions. Sometimes people have even, one of my boards says, these are the questions that we would like the board to address. So if we're on a particular subject area, each section would provide the information and then say, these are the questions we'd like your conversation about. So it really focuses the conversation. I find that to be very helpful. And I also find that when you say to someone who's doing a particular topic, um, we've read the information, you know, maybe show us two or three charts that you want to highlight and then let's discuss it. And some of these boards that could be fairly large boards, how do you make sure if you're the CEO or you're the executives, how do you feel confident that every board member has read through all the slides so that you can get into the meat of the conversation right away instead of presenting the slides? That's on the board member. The, the person can't worry about if their board member isn't reading the material before the meeting, they shouldn't be on the board. I mean, you have to you have to go in and assume assume that you're doing they're doing the work, and that's one of the reasons that we do uh, annual board evaluations. So, you know, large companies of which I've been on a board are much 
are very disciplined about doing that, are very disciplined about the lead director or non-executive chair providing direct feedback because you're each evaluated by your peers. There have been times that people have been asked to leave a board because it's clear to their colleagues that they're not doing the work and not contributing. Those days of being a part of a board and not doing the job required uh, are long gone or should be long gone. And no one should hesitate to say, you know, thanks, we've appreciated your contributions and goodbye. And speaking of like board members, so I'm sure you've been on boards with like super productive board members that you admire and are really adding a lot of value. And then maybe some board members that are either not adding any value at all, or maybe even adding negative value to the board. When you're thinking about like recruiting board members, what are some telltale signs that they're going to be more value add? The kinds of questions they ask you in the interview process. And that's so much better now because there's so much material out there that if somebody really wants to go on your board um, they should come in having on their own, you know, read materials and ask questions. I mean, I used to do that when I was considering a board, I'd go in probably with a lot more questions and asking to meet if the person says, I'd really like to meet with some of the leadership team to, to, to ask them questions, then you know that the interest is high. Um, I strongly suggest that if, that person doesn't exhibit that interest in and desire to delve deeper, that says a lot. Is there a particular board member you're so impressed with that you, that you learned from or that you try to emulate something that they did? So again, you're talking about, <laughs> oh my God, every time I think about how long I've been on boards, you know, <laughs> 30 years now, of course, there've been things that I've picked up, you know, I can't say one, the most important is come prepared. I can't, that's like underscore number one, come prepared, come prepared, come prepared, have questions. I mean, <laughs> I remember my first GE board meeting and I really wanted to be prepared obviously, but I came in and so, and I had my questions. It was an interesting business and, um, and I had some very specific questions. And I remember Jack at the time saying, wow, you're, you're asking a lot of questions for your first meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I just, I have a very high curiosity. So one of the things that you're talking about characteristics, you want somebody who's going to be really interested in the business, right? Um, and again, finding that balance of not trying to run the business, but having enough interest that you're going to ask questions and, and learn as much as you can about a business. And if you don't see that energy, that's a big telltale sign. I also have found over time that the people who listen and are not always trying to show how smart they are with a comment tend to be the better directors. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that, but they can be at times you see somebody who's just either trying to impress or, um, just getting into minutia that like it's not appropriate for the full board conversation. 
And now, how do you think about age? Sometimes you're getting people like in the prime of their career. They might be CEO of some other company at that time. And then there are board members that may be retired from like running companies day to day. Do you want like some sort of diversity on the board or how do you, how do you think about that? Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely correct. The diversity of the people, one of the most important committees, I think, is the governance committee because you're constantly looking at a skills matrix in terms of what the what the business needs are um, and what do the members bring to the table in terms of, I'll say, use the word content. And so you're you're always balancing that between a retired CEO who has more time to give versus an active CEO who you know may not always be there, but when they're there, you get so much. So you're always weighing you know, the benefits of a person's engagement and the level of engagement. And you want to have a range of that on the board. Interesting. And what what about like size? I know like Northrop Grumman, I think it's 13 people. Novartis is 14. Like, how do you think of like the ideal number of board members at a public company? Because there are all these committees to be on. I really think you don't want to go above 15. My personal opinion, after years of experience, um, and the reason that you even get to that, and it's probably fluid between 13 and 15, that again, the governance committee is always looking at, um, you know, people's time on a board. One of the great rules that I think, well, it, it's been that way in the UK, is that is a 10-year um, max and you're done. You can be the best director in the world. I think that's a great rule. That's been, because I started on board so early in my career, um, in fact, Spencer Stewart placed me on my first couple of boards and the the guy who did, God bless him, said, you know, joining at this time, don't think it's a, it's a lifetime commitment. And so in my own mind, I said, okay, 10 years would be about the right amount of time and then, and then step down, um, which is why you see I've served on more boards um, because I've sort of done that. So you think there should be like some sort of term limits for board members? I absolutely, I'm a big believer in that. Um, in European, we just added a 12-year term limit at Novartis. U.S. companies tend to lag and more focus on age and not years of service. Um, and most of them have a balance between age and years of service. So Novartis has a 70-year retirement uh, cap, and and I'm hitting that this year. I can't believe it. But anyway. I never understood the age um, thing. I mean, we're at a time where our president and our head of our Senate and head of our Congress are all, you know, people in their late 70s. Like, why is there an age limit? You know what? Let me just say this, because Northrop Grumman is 75, and companies have been creeping up. I think that was a way for for time in a way, especially companies didn't have term limits. So my opinion is <laughs> stick with the term limit. If somebody gets to 76 or 77, that's fine, but stick with the 12, 13 year term limit and you've solved the issue. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if Warren Buffett wants to be on my board, I'm happy to have him. Like there's- Exactly, yeah. right, totally agree. And how do you think about people with specific skill sets? Obviously, there, there needs to be people on the audit committee. How do you think about that as you're kind of creating this board team? 
Oh, we absolutely do. I mean, that's almost the starting point. So obviously now you need financial experts, but you think about that and you look, I'll give you an example. So audit committee, you have to have, you should have multiple financial experts. You have to have at least one, but ideally two or three financial experts on the audit committee. Um, and you also want to be thinking about, you know, how you alternate chairs of those committees. And you don't want a person to be on one committee for like 10 years, right? So we're always looking at how you refresh, which is the word we use, a committee, because there's some people who obviously have multiple skills, particularly if you have a former CEO who's really got a really a full range and complement of skills that they bring to conversations, whether it's the risk committee or the governance committee or the technology committee. And so you're always looking at, as I say, that matrix of skills, time in the role, time in the committee, and when that person is going to exit, making sure that we've brought in a new board member to have those skills and you know, make sure it's a seamless transition. So for example, for me leaving Novartis, we always know when people are going to retire and we say, okay, we want to bring in, you know, a female, um, perhaps a woman of color, somebody who understands marketing and strategy, ESG. And so we tee that up and get that person on a year or two and we overlap. And so as I come off at this year's AGM, that person's already in place and is, and is you know, has, has come up the ramp. And so being very conscious of that kind of flow of your, and, and I'll tell you when I really got good at that was serving on the Unilever board because of the 10 year window. So we had to constantly be aware of who was coming off when, you know, who was going to be the next chair of the audit committee. And, and that requires attention and time and obviously sort of ongoing recruitment and working with, you know, typically we worked with a search firm for particular things. And sometimes we'd already had a pretty deep list of people that we were interested in and just started the process. So, I mean, it's an ongoing process. As I said, the work of the governance committee, I, I don't think people truly understand how important it is. Some boards are this like collection of super smart people, but some boards really up-level it and, and they're, they become a team and the board itself is a really a team. How does one go from a collection of smart people to the board itself operating as a real team? So I'll give you a couple of examples, the way people approach it, and I think is particularly effective. You, don't, you never want your board to just come into a meeting, have the meeting and leave, right? You have to have times when, you know, a, a team building sounds trite, but in essence, it's a dinner the night before with just you and the, and the chairman and CEO. Um, and it's, you know, cocktails for you know 45 minutes or so but time for just everybody to talk and know each other so you always carve out time for that to happen um and then get into the meeting at least one meeting a year it's off-site so you have a little bit more of that 
social time together because it is a socializing aspect where you can get to know each other. I think all of that ties into how you build that relationship where people can be honest, authentic. And it's, it's very interesting, the sensitivity you bring when we're bringing in new board members, right? Um, and making sure that they feel included and can ask that. I tend to always be there for the new person to say, you know, if you ever feel like you want to ask the stupid question, feel comfortable asking me, asking me offline. So, but it takes time. I'd say for the new board member coming in, it's usually 12 to 18 months for them to feel sort of comfortable in all the relationships, but most really good boards really embrace the new person because they want that. They're glad to have that talent and that voice at the table. This is a, a data podcast. So how do you think boards could better use or best use data? Well, as I said, the, the biggest gift to boards has been having board portals because you can get more information. You can have a repository of, of data. So you have what you have, obviously, your materials for the current board meeting, but you also have a section usually called resources. And so what we put in there is information like analyst reports or industry reports or other things that, that people can read at their leisure and not necessarily for this board meeting. Like you can go into your resources and, and read it at any time, but that people continue to update materials, I find it's very helpful. So Google alerts for me are work very well. I have them for my boards. I have them for you know certain people who I think might add value to commentary on the board. So there's so many places that you can get information from today. And again, it just depends on a director's desire to kind of go beyond the the basics, which of course I, I have the time to do that and the interesting and inclination to do it. How do you approach like a difficult conversation with the CEO? Let's say, I mean, you're a marketing expert. So let's say you, you think that maybe the CMO at the company is not cutting it and they should upgrade. Like, how do you approach the CEO with this kind of difficult conversation? Very directly, very directly, but I don't do it like you should fire this person, right? I mean, but I just say, here's some of the things you should ask the person, you know, have they done this? Here's some of the gaps that I'm seeing. There have been many, many times, sadly, but, you know, organizations or organizations when you observe things and then uh, the other very important part of board meetings is executive sessions, and I think different boards use them or don't use them, but I think they're very important because you can share information there with your colleagues, and then you'll find, oh, this other person has the same questions about an individual, right? And, and sorry, this is executive session with the CEO or executive session where the CEO is not even there? With the CEO, and then when we have executive session without the CEO, both are very important. Speaking of CEO, you, you mentioned term limits for boards. Do you think public companies should have term limits for the CEO? Let me put it this way. <laughs> I don't know too many CEOs who want to be like 
you know, CEO for 20 years, you know, that's those true. Days yeah. are over. <laughs> it's a hard job. So, so I don't think we have to worry about that going forward. <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's a good point. We have to try to make sure we keep them for at least, you know, eight to 10 years these days. <laughs> right. It's a grueling job. Is there a way to make it less grueling? No, I sadly, sadly, it's not. I just, you know, I was just talking with one CEO yesterday and it is grueling is an understatement. Um, and I don't see anything easing up in the, the near future, obviously having to deal with the pandemic implications of how you get work done. I mean, the job is just so vastly different from three years ago, right? Maybe it's better because maybe it's just a little bit less travel, which obviously can be a lot of stress on a CEO. Yes and no. I think some people sort of miss the travel. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know you're also on the boards of some really well-known nonprofits like uh, WGBH and the Brookings Institution. What, What are some kind of commonalities and differences between these these effective nonprofit boards and the for-profit boards? That's a really good question. I think for a not-for-profit board, I want to talk about sort of ethical considerations as well as reputation. So again, early on when I joined boards, reputation was pretty solid. People respected corporations. In today's world, it's very easy. If you slip on one thing, right, the press can go berserk and, and you're dealing with reputational issues. That affects both a for-profit, but it particularly affects a not-for-profit because your reputation is what allows you to get people's support monetarily in every other way. So I think the reputational risk challenge is I have found uh, even more important for not-for-profit entities. Uh, and so we really have to work the communications, the internal behavior and transparency in critical on all, but particularly in a not-for-profit. You're also a champion of diversity. There are a lot of different ways that companies bring in more people of color, more women onto their boards and also into their executive ranks. What, what are some like non-obvious ways that companies should be thinking about that? I'm going to come back to the comments I made earlier about governance and what kind of skills. And, and I also use the word voices. What voices do you want to have um, at the table just beyond sort of the perhaps business skills, but the different experiences that they then bring to the conversation? So I, th- I think about that a lot across all my boards. Do we have younger voices? And I, I, you know, I'm not being ageist since I'm in the age group, (laughs) but I do think that younger people look at the world differently and we have to have that voice in the room. A big part of one's organization, again, profit or not for profit, is the people, is the talent. And I think as we bring people on our boards who are younger, they bring that voice to how we talk about organization and what people want from a career and how we should think about their development. Because your talent is the foundation of the success of your organization. I'm a big believer in that. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of 
having younger voices around the table, but also voices that are balanced and bring a maturity to them. So, I mean, I joined my first board at 40. Um, and I've, I mean, I've grown and learned over the past 30 years. Uh, and but what I talk about and what I was able to bring to those early conversations, I, I understand from my colleagues was very helpful. And most of the time I was always the youngest person on the board. I can't say that anymore, but, um, but I really encourage the young people that we bring into the mix to feel confident about expressing their points of view. Now, I have a few personal questions for you. Um, one of them is, is around national security. And I, I know you serve on the board of Northrop Grumman. And I, I think your mom worked for the NSA. What does the average person like not get about national security? It's not always like that popular in tech circles these days. Yeah, I know. It's a it's a hard it's a really hard one, particularly when people see well they think about limitations. But I I just say there's two sides to every story. The complexity of the world that we live in today to ensure the national safety is immense. There's a fine line and I you know knowing that I'm talking with a lot of folks who have that tech background I would just say, try to see it from the other side. Just try to look at it from both sides. I also know you're a product of Catholic school. Is that is this something you recommend to people? Well, you, how you do did you think your homework. You? <laughs> we don't mess around the world of DAS. We're a data company, you know. So let me just say this. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you have young, most of your listeners are probably younger than my kids. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 50s, very segregated city. In fact, it surprises me sometimes when I go back and, you know, the gentrification of Washington, D.C. Is, is amazing. But back when I was growing up and going to Catholic school, it was all black. My nuns were black nuns. I didn't even know there were white nuns until I went to the college. So there you go. My church, St. Augustine in Washington, D.C., which I hope you will have a chance to go to since you're in the area oldest Black Catholic church, oldest congregation of Black Catholics. Um, and at the time, I didn't, I didn't even understand that. It's like 150 years old. And I didn't understand the significance of it as a kid growing up, just like it didn't seem different to me being in a community where everybody was Black. And here we are now in 2022 with a very different environment, very different group of folks to go to St. Augustine in a good way, but, you know, we still have the gospel mass. And even back then, gospel mass didn't technically exist, though. Um, so, but what did I learn? <laughs> Very simple rules of treating others the way you want to be treated. And that, to me, is very grounding and continues to be very grounding. Over time, as I got older, learned about other religions, um, particularly impacted by Buddhism and Hinduism and just learning the commonalities. You know, Mary in the Catholic Church is a really major figure and she's in the Quran, right? How many people understand the role that Mary played and that she's in the Quran? So I think of myself, um, Obviously, I was baptized Catholic, but I hope that the respect that I have for all religions 
is really important to me. I think you got married and you had your first child while at college, which is also a bit untraditional. Yep. Like what advice would you give to people like maybe aspiring people who want to have a family? Well, again, that was 1970. This is 2022. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, the it was a very different time. And, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder and, you know, I'm not rushing my grandkids to get married. One's 26 now. The oldest is 26. The other's turned 24. Um, and then down to 12 and 15. But um, life is different today. Sometimes I wonder if I'd get married, if I'd have children, you know, all those, all those questions that people ask themselves here in the 21st century, I think are very important questions. Luckily, I made the right choice. And I've had my, you know, we're going on 51 years this year. And I'm really pleased with my partner and buddy and friend and everything. But um, it's just so different today. All right. Well, last question we ask all of our guests, what do you, what's the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? I wish people would stop thinking about, I'll use the word arriving, like, oh, I'm CEO. This is a really big deal. It's really not. And it's not the most important thing in your life, right? I think life is a continuous journey. There's no real end point. I mean, even after you leave this space, you're going to go into another plane. I think we put burdens on young people when we talk about, you know, getting to this position or getting to this point. And people say, oh, I've made it. You know what? You never make it. You really don't. And money is not the, the thing to make that determinant of your success. Well, then how do people know they've had a fulfilling life because you've given back or you've had meaning or how should one evaluate their life? I mean, that's what it's about. That's exactly what it's about. It's what it's honestly, it's what you give in the, and you don't see this when you're a young person because you're just striving so much. But in that striving, sometimes you just miss the value of your existence, which you don't know when it's going to end, right? You just don't know. So don't you think you should have a little joy along the way and not just be constantly striving and making money? I mean, it's sad that you just recognize that usually as you get older. But if you could live your life understanding that and putting it all in the right perspective, you'll have a much more enriched life without regret. Great. This has been amazing. Thank you for being with us on World of Das. Great. It's been fun. You guys take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph.